All right, again, I want to welcome you to our gathering today. I uh, welcome you all to, uh, man, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. Uh, and, uh, man, we are glad to be celebrating uh, together. Uh, but as we get settled in, let's go ahead and again, uh, as we did our call to worship was out of John 20. Man, we are going to continue our time today in the Gospel of John, the fourth book in the New Testament. Uh, John chapter 20, the words will be up on the screen, but if you have a Bible, you can turn uh, there as well. Uh, but man, today in John 20... In celebrating the significance of today, we're going to be continuing a three-week series that we kicked off last week entitled Engaging Redemption. Now you see, the goal of our series, uh, what we set out to do, is to look uh, at how Jesus engages, uh, but, but not only engages... He also redeems our sin, doubts, and insecurities through His life, death, and resurrection. You see, if you remember last week, what we saw was that to engage something, to engage defined is to occupy, attract, or involve the attention or life of another. And what I talked about is, man, when we, uh, when you have a significant other, when you engage someone in a dating relationship, you want to occupy their time. You want to occupy their attention, right? Like you, uh, man, you want to be around them. And so we do, uh, man, at times silly things like making mixtapes for our significant others so that, uh, man, we can try to woo them and win them over. Kids, man, you probably don't know what a mixtape is, uh, but uh, ask your parents later. Uh, they'll know. Uh, and so we do those things because we want to engage. And then, uh, but it, with Jesus, what we know from the story of redemption is that Jesus didn't come and dwell among us just to show us what it means to live a life that is fully submitted to the Father's will. And, and then he didn't come and do that and then say, hey, just get it together or just believe better. What he does is he engages us and he in engaging us, he doesn't shy away from our brokenness. You see, every other religion, what they say is you earn your way. You have to be good enough or do enough so that you might engage God. I mean, Christianity is, is the opposite. Jesus came. God that put on flesh came and engaged us. He came in such a way that when engaged by him, what we know is, and I shared this last week, we who are unclean are made clean by way of his redemption for us. Again, redemption defined as the compensation for the faults or bad aspects of a person. Another way to say this is that Jesus came and he lived and he died and ultimately resurrected to make amends for our evil and error. So last week we saw through the prophet Isaiah that for this to happen, it would come by way of a brutal death that was one, not expected, but also would not be how anyone else would write a redemptive story. You see, we like, and we see this all the time, we like happily ever after, do we not? Like every Disney movie, every book you read as a child, like even, man, as you grow up in age, like even, man, movies that, that we watch, shows that we watch, man, we love the happily ever after. But you see, we, unlike Jesus, we like a willingness to sacrifice, but what happens is we tend to stop just short, short of redemptive sacrifice. 
That's why you see these moments, not in every movie, but in most movies or, or uh, man, uh, stories of redemption. We see it gets to this moment, it builds this tension, and then, man, something happens. The climax or the catalyst of the story happens, and, man, we don't like to set in the uncomfortable nature of that. And so they may let us set for a few seconds. Like, you remember Homeward Bound? Like, have you seen that movie? Like, they get to the end of it, and Chance, and then whatever the cat's name was, because Mio's a cat. Uh, the cat shows up, and then, I can't remember the old dog's name. Shadow, like, yeah, y'all know. Like, y'all are like, we're going to watch that today. Uh, Shadow, like, he's like, he's too old. He's too old, and you're sitting there like, I remember as a kid, like, I'm crying, you know. I'm like, oh gosh. And then all of a sudden, because they don't want it to last too long, Shadow shows up. It's this redemptive moment. But it, but it doesn't go far enough. It's not like the story of redemption we see in the Scriptures. You see, even when we think about our own sacrifice, because we all, like, there are moments, there are times when we sacrifice for one another, Right? Like when we have these moments, we have to serve and sacrifice for one another. But often our sacrifice is attached to our egos or how others view us. Is it not? So everything that we do, we calculate it based on the return. Right? Like we're calculating based on, man, what am I going to get out of this? But Jesus doesn't do that. No, Jesus lays his life down. Jesus engages us differently. And that's why today and really every day we can stand united under the grace of God and celebrate a risen Savior that would come and not only engage our brokenness, but rather than shame us for it, He would take our shame upon Himself and redeem the depths of our deadness so that we might have life. And so this brings us to the story of the resurrection that we began in our call to worship today, where we're going to see how Jesus not only engages and redeems our death, giving us life, he engages our doubts and empowers our faith. Let's look now at John 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Okay, so as we enter into this portion of John 20, I I want to revert back to our call to worship this morning to give us a picture of what's taken place thus far in light of Christ's resurrection. So if you remember from the reading uh, to begin our time, Mary goes out early on the Sunday morning following Jesus' death. But upon arriving, all she found was an empty tomb that led her to believe that Jesus' body had been taken. Now, the reality is that resurrection has come for Jesus in perfect obedience to the Father died and rose again. And so Mary heads back in distress and she tells Peter and John, and it says in John 20 that they take off and run. But one of them, the one who loves Jesus, is loved by Jesus, he continues to tell us that he runs a bit faster, right? He gets there and he they see the tomb for themselves. 
they find it says that they find it empty. And then it shares this note twice that his grave clothes are in good order. It says that the thing the, the, the thing that went over his face was folded up. One pastor who preached this text as I was preparing this week, he said that the second miracle of the resurrection was that a single man remembered to fold his clothes, which means that it had to be a work of God. And as I thought about that, I was like, I remembered Haley and I's first date. So our first date, I, in my room at the house I lived in, uh, in Waco, I had taken half of it and I'd run a wire and put curtains up. And that was like my holy of holies. That's where I really just read the Bible a whole lot. And and uh, the, these curtains covered the whole wall. And so I had a couch in there, my bookshelf, a lamp, a desk. And man, I would go in there and sometimes read my Bible. Uh, and uh, But I, I had it all set up. And I remember she's heading that direction. And I go in, I'm cleaning up the house. I'm getting everything ready. And I go in my room and man, there are clothes everywhere. I I hate folding clothes. It's like my least favorite thing. Last night, we had worked all day outside. I go inside and on the bed, there's this pile of clothes because Haley had been washing clothes throughout the day. And I just looked at her and I was like, can we please just hide these tonight? And and just, uh, we'll fold them tomorrow. And she's like, no, we can't. And, you know, so I begrudgingly, you know, help fold the clothes. And But on that particular day, I was like, I don't want to fold these. I'll just throw them behind these curtains. She'll never look in there, Right. So she arrives and I'm showing around the house. I'm like, this is Febreze sprayer number one. That's Febreze sprayer number two and number three. They're all different scents. Don't worry. No, it smells good. And so we're going through the house and we get, I was like, yeah, this is my room. And she's like, what are those curtains? I was like, oh, that's my quiet time room, you know? And so I'm like, I think I'm done. I'm going to show her something else. And she just goes in and she just like opens it up. And there's my mat. Nothing's folded. Nothing. Everything is just a mess. And I was like, here we are. Like, this is it. <laughs> the only date, right? Um, so they go in. I don't know why my mind works like that, but it does. They go in and they see everything put in order. What, what seems very out of order. What seems very, man, it's crazy. They don't know what is going on. But man, things, man, they're odd. Like they look and it's like, uh, in something that seems so crazy, there are things that are ordered and put in place. So these two disciples, upon seeing the empty tomb, begin to believe. It says they begin to believe in a resurrection they don't fully understand. They, as one writer states, like us, are in need of the Holy Spirit to help us understand what the entirety of God's story reveals about the person and work of Jesus. You see, Jesus reveals himself. We see after this, they go back and and Mary is sitting there. She's distraught. I mean, Jesus reveals himself to her. Upon Jesus revealing himself, he says, hey, go tell the other disciples. And so they go, I mean, likely what happens, they go and tell, they, they, they haven't experienced this. They know things, something's happened, but they, man, they're dealing with doubt. They're struggling to believe. They are fearful of what has happened. And so all this takes place on that morning, but that evening, verse 19, in the midst of a lot of confusion and doubt as to whether or not Mary's uh, assertions of encountering Jesus were true, The disciples, it says they find themselves not only behind closed doors, but locked doors out of fear of the Jews. You see, the the disciples are saying, hey, they killed Jesus. When are they going to come and take us, right? So they're behind locked doors. And in the midst of this, Jesus shows up and engages them. 
engages their fear and their doubt, but he does it in a way that's not common by any means, right? He says he stands among them. You see, first, by coming and standing among them, John states that these disciples are they're sitting in this room out of fear for their lives, and Jesus just shows up. He didn't have a key. He didn't walk through a door. He didn't climb through a window. He shows up in their midst. You see, the resurrected king shows up. Which brings me to the second point that's more of a question. Can you imagine the exponential growth of the amount of fear that just fills the room? Like they're already scared and then boom, Jesus is just there. The fear, I mean, it goes up exponentially, I'm sure. And so Jesus, in the midst of fear, engages it. And what he says, he shows up and all he says is, peace be with you. You see, Jesus doesn't show up with a list of reasons. He doesn't say, hey, 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 let me just tell you how I just showed up right now. Let me, let me, let me calm your fear. Let me do it. No, he just says, peace be with you. See, these disciples have experienced a whirlwind of grief, doubt, condemnation, guilt, and fear since Christ's arrest and his death. And the future looked Bleak, the doors are locked and it seems like death is coming, but that's not what happens. The way Jesus engages these things and in the same way, the way he engages our fear and doubts is by calling us to peace. But again, this word that Jesus speaks is much more. And we talked about it last week. It's much more than the typical phrase used between the meeting of friends. You see, this phrase was commonly spoken as the shalom of God or the unqualified well-being that would characterize the people of God when the kingdom had dawned. And Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who came as a baby, is now the King of Peace that has engaged the war of our sin and brokenness and has come out victorious and He has created peace or shalom. This is why we proclaim Jesus as the Prince of Peace. For not only will He come in time come and make all things new, bringing peace and eternal restoration by overthrowing the brokenness of the world, Jesus has already come and brought peace to the deeper realities of our hearts. So in the midst of our fear and doubt, Jesus engages us not with a list of demands or, hey, quit, get it together... I can't believe you wouldn't understand what Isaiah was talking about and all the other uh, prophecies about me. Rather, what he does, he says, peace be with you. And then it says he shows them the scars on his hand and his side. Jesus engages us with the scars of redemption. He doesn't tell them the ins and outs of what has transpired. He simply shows them his hands and his side. You see, Christ, then showing himself alive, reveals to the disciples and to us that he is the perfect sacrifice that engages our lives in a way that casts out all fear. It brings shalom. It brings peace. He makes peace available to us. And in showing where his wounds were received... Jesus is revealing that it was by his wounds that we are what? That we are healed. We saw this last week when we looked at Isaiah. Isaiah says, man, but it's by his wounds we are healed. And it says that he brings what? He brings peace and healing. 
Not only that, but his scars represent the glory of God's work in and through him while also. And I believe that, man, the, the reason like because God, he, he could have like Jesus could have not had scars. But he does. He says, hey, no, see, see what like I am. I'm resurrected. These are where the nails went in. This is where the spear pierced my side. And what he wants us to see, what he's encouraging us to see is that our own scars are a way to give God glory for the way that Christ has engaged and redeemed even the most broken parts of our stories. So today to the scars of your life, and, and by scars I'm not, I'm not just talking about physical scars, or the, although there may be, but to the scars of your life, to your fears, to your hurts, to your doubts, to your experiences reveal the power of Christ's glory and resurrection. And not only that, but does the daily reality of Christ's resurrection bring joy and gladness of heart? Because you should, it should. And in this story it does, because once they, they see His hands, they see His side, it says that they, they are filled with peace, but this peace, it says that they were glad. Now again, it, it's lost in translation. Uh, the word for glad actually means they are overjoyed. You see, the engagement of Jesus brings joy. He turns our sorrow to joy. And so the disciples are revived with joy and gladness. But again, Jesus says, hey, hey, calm down. He's, he says again, he says, peace be with you guys. I'm like, hey, be at peace. And he tells them, hey, there's still work to do. As I shared last week, when Jesus engages us, he engages us. And then empowers us so that we might then, what? We might engage others. That we might proclaim the redemption of what Jesus has done. And guess what? That can't be done in our own strength. And so we see at the end of the passage we just read that He breathes upon them and tells them to receive the Spirit. In doing this, Jesus also gives the disciples the authority to pronounce forgiveness of sins. Now, this pronouncing throughout the history of the church has extended itself through the preaching of the gospel. You see, in our proclaiming the good news to the world around us, it uh, in and of itself, what, it has one of two options. Either it brings men to repentance as they are met, as they are engaged with the reality of their brokenness and their need to be forgiven, or it leaves them unresponsive to the offer of forgiveness. And so they are left in sin. Tim Keller says you're going to do one of two things with Jesus. You're either going to crown him or you're going to kill him. You see, the job that we've been given, the job the disciples were given is to simply engage and proclaim the good news of Christ's redemption of sin and death as we are empowered by the Spirit. You see, it is God who effectively forgives and retains sin. And guess what? That must be in word and deed. It has to be both. You see, I can serve all day. But if I don't proclaim the engaging redemption of Jesus with my words, I'm only serving really to the glory of self. And man, as I shared last week, man, I make a crummy God. I bring no salvation. The reason I say that, and I mean, even today as we... Uh, y'all are all probably sitting here listening to this and you're thinking about like, 
you know, the kids are thinking about the Easter eggs they're going to get here and then the Easter eggs they're going to get later. And, you know, some of you are thinking about the food that needs to be prepared and the nap you're going to take and all this stuff. Like, let us not let today or any day get lost in the stuff. May we remember that we are to proclaim Jesus. And so we see all this, but let's delve a bit further into how Jesus engages and redeems our fear and doubts by looking at verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the, uh, of the, uh, and, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. All right, so in the midst of everything that took place on the evening of the resurrection, we find out in the next verse that Thomas, uh, who was a disciple of Jesus, he wasn't in the room when Jesus showed up. And so he returns and the disciples tell him the news and his response is doubt. Actually, when you translate it, when you look at what's happening here, uh, the words that are used, it says it, it really the, the, the posture is that the disciples, they begin to debate with him. They are trying over and over again. They're saying, no, you don't understand. He's resurrected. He showed up. And he keeps arguing, no. Really, what he's like, hey, guys, I was just out. Maybe y'all need to go get some fresh air because y'all been cooped up in here too long. But also, like in Thomas's mind, like he has no grid for this. You see, Jews believed that, man, a, 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 when a person was dead for three days, they were what was called dead dead. No chance. (laughs) They were dead, dead. And so Thomas, he hears this and he's like, there's no way. Can't happen. Now, now, as we hear this, I want to take a quick poll. How many doubters do we have in the room? Look, everyone just raise your hand, okay? Like we all, like... The the reality is, to varying degrees, and we're going to get there in a second, we all struggle with doubt. But how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, when hearing something, when you hear something or you see something, your first, maybe not all the time, but a lot of the time, your first inclination is to doubt the validity of what's being said or done. You just automatic questions, arguments against it just start flowing, right? You hold anything at arm's length until you're comfortable with it. You doubt it. And I think we're all like that. But man, I, you know, I, like when I think about it, and man, I, like, you know, and just because I'm in the midst of it, like, man, kids, which they're just a younger version of how we act, but I'm just going to use that as an example. Man, they like... Like, most of the time my children will believe their other, their cousins before they'll believe me. Like, they're seven. I'm 35. Like, 
I think I know a few things. It's like, no, you don't, right? Like, you know, it, it, like it happens all the time. Like the other night we were hanging out and I was, we got, we started telling this story about the time that Haley tried to push me in front of an alligator. Haley did push me in front of an alligator, okay? And, uh, you know, I don't hate her for it. Like, I'm just like, hey, like, is that moment where you're like, look, we may be close, but you're closer, right? Like, one of us is gonna get bit. Go! Uh, that's not what she did. Uh, but we, we were telling the story and the, the, the response from, all the kids was like, didn't happen. It's like, no, it did. It literally did. And part of the reason they don't believe me is because I mess with them all the time. And part of it is like, most of the stuff I say, like, I'm just joking with them. And so they, I did it to myself. But if I can say, no, literally, I was put, there was an alligator here. It was 17 feet long. Not really, but, uh, and I was pushed towards it. Doesn't matter the distance, it's an alligator. Like, if I tell you, like, I'm not joking around, right? It was, no, nope, no. Nope. And they all were like, it was like they colluded together and was like, it didn't happen. Uncle Kyle is a liar. <laughs> It's like, well, you're going to have a really hard time when you get older and I have to preach to you all the time. So, uh, but that's like, that's it. It's this immediate doubt. Like, it couldn't be. This is what's happening in this situation with Thomas. You see, Thomas is hearing all this and, and he's just like, no, that, this is crazy. He even goes so far to say, he says, look, he says, if you want me to believe, unless I see his hands... Unless I touch his hands where the nails went in, unless I put my hand on his side, man, I'm not going to believe. And today, what are you holding on to that's keeping you from belief? What's your unless? Unless I see fill in the blank. Unless God does this. Unless God reveals this. Unless God answers questions A through Z, I'm never going to believe. You see, I think we, we don't we don't really press into that because what we do is we hear this passage and we just like, oh, doubting Thomas. Like he has a nickname, right? Multiple other people all through Scripture doubted. But Thomas has a nickname. And that's what we look to. We're like, yeah, that wouldn't be me. But guess what? There, I believe that the reason this story is is here is so that we would realize that this is the story of us. For we all struggle with doubts. We all at times doubt God. We doubt the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit in our lives. Not only that, but we have been conditioned. We are being conditioned by our culture and by the media and by even at times one another. We're being conditioned not with the Bible and God's Word. We're being conditioned by, man, opinions or whatever. It's just everywhere to doubt everything that doesn't conform to our standard of truth. Now note, I said, I, I didn't say God's standard. I said our standard. Because guess what? A lot of times our standard of truth is, man, at times it's at war with God. And uh, unless we submit uh, and say, God, your standard of truth is the only standard. We're going to constantly be doubting everything. Guess what? Like you should, uh, and I want you to hear this correctly. Um, the root of doubt is not simply a doubting of self. And guess what? We should. 
You should doubt yourself in this way. You should doubt yourself in your own ability to bring redemption and change to your life. But the root of that, the root of that doubt is the doubting of the good news that God loved us enough to engage every part of your brokenness. You see, when you really begin to press into it, it's not that you doubt, it's that you really that you doubt that God would love you that much because you realize just how broken you are. You see, we struggle to believe that God really cares to engage our brokenness. We struggle to believe that He cares to engage our doubts. And then if you add in your wounds, because we all have those, like, I mean, if it wasn't complicated enough, it just adds on. They themselves can be a catalyst for unbelief, right? Hurt, pain, and sorrow from others, man, and just the broken reality of our world causes us to wrestle with doubt. God, do you really love me and care for me? Are you really able and willing to engage and redeem my sins, my doubts, and my insecurities? You ever struggle with this? Man, but praise God that not only does Jesus meet us in the midst of our fears, He meets us in the midst of our doubts. And so what we see is it says after eight days, His disciples were inside again. This time Thomas is with Him. When Jesus, again, without knocking, stands among them and he says, peace be with you, because guess what? They're just as it it freaks them out just as much this time as it did last time. Right. They're probably like, Jesus, we have doors like, come on, like you're like, I know you're saying peace, but like it's it's a reaction like they don't know what to do with it. So he says, peace be with you. But I want us to, there's another note that I think is even, man, to me, like when I think about the reality of it, is, is almost like it's hard for me to, to understand and comprehend, but I think we need to hear it. This is eight days. This story of Thomas doubting, that, that, that happened eight days ago. It hasn't been dealt with yet. He's still doubting. You see, what we have to realize is that Jesus engages our doubts in His timing. He's the sovereign King over all, and He's not bound to meet our demands, doubts, and our need for explanation. And that's, guess what? That's hard for us, is it not? We want our answer and we want it now. And if you don't give it to me now, guess what? I got Google, okay? And I'm going to search Google, and it's going to give, guess what? Google will give you whatever answer you want, you're like, what? No, you search specifically enough. You're going to find you're actually going to find the answer you're looking for. So we can disagree on things and you can Google something and come up with an answer. And I can Google something and probably come up with an entirely different answer. But it's quick and it's easy and it's probably going to make us feel comfortable and good about ourselves or even just uh, man, allow us to uh, man validate how we're feeling. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus shows up eight days later and proclaims peace. Man, how many of you, you're still holding on to an answer you haven't received eight days ago? A year ago. Two years ago. Five years ago. Like, you're holding, like, your your doubt is that deeply rooted because you're like, God, you still haven't answered this. And I don't like it. But He shows up. And He proclaims peace. 
And then immediately what he does is he engages Thomas's doubts. He says, hey, Thomas. And again, Jesus wasn't there when Thomas said all this. He was. He's everywhere. All He is God in the flesh, right? He's omniscient, omnipresent. He's all powerful. Like he, he's there. He, he looks at Thomas and he says, Thomas, hey, you wanted, you wanted to touch my hands? Touch my hands. See the scars, man. Put your hand on my side. You see, what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's revealing himself. He's showing himself to be God in the flesh that not only knows our heart, or no, he doesn't just know our thoughts, he knows our hearts. You see, in our lives, Jesus again is not bound up by our demands of information and clarification. Rather, and I love, this is all Jesus does is he simply engages all of who we are with the reality of his resurrection. And you see, the reason he does this is because the reality of the resurrection is the cure for what ails us. The reality, the resurrection is the hinge point. That's where things really begin to break off. Man, many other religions will say that Jesus died. But the hinge point is the resurrection. They'll say, yeah, he died, but he didn't rise again. They stole his body or it was, you know, he really didn't die. He was just in a coma or whatever it was. They make all these answers to it. But Jesus just says, no, I'm not going to answer all your what ifs and all your questions and all the things that you think need to be lined out. All Jesus does is says, hey, here. I died and I rose again. Look at my hands. Look at my side. And what he's doing in that moment is he says, hey, look how much I love you. Look at the great love I have for you. You see, it's not the resurrection plus all these other explanations. It's faith in the resurrection alone. And some of you today don't like that. You come in here even today seeing the resurrection but not marveling in faith due to the reality that your doubts are filled with demands of getting answers that you have no authority to have or if you got them, they would in no way do the work that the resurrection can do. Guess what? Explanations and answers aren't the resurrection. And the resurrection actually, like, is a, in many ways, like, it's unexplainable. We can't comprehend it. So you can get all those answers and you still be dead. What Jesus does, he says, no, like, even if you don't have all the answers, man, look at what I've done. Believe, have faith. That's what Jesus is doing when he tells Thomas to touch his wounds. He's saying, hey, no longer disbelieve. He's saying, Thomas, believe. He's saying, have faith. Man, you believed in me before. Don't become faithless now because it didn't line up, because you don't have a grid for it, because not all your questions are answered. You see, without belief, what he's telling Thomas is to lay down his doubts and trust in the resurrected Christ, because without belief or faith, we are without Christ. And without Christ, we are without grace. And without grace, we are without hope and joy. And so Thomas is met with the reality of his doubt. And his answer to Jesus with the resounding belief, he looks at him, he says, my Lord, my God. This is Thomas displaying his faith in Christ's resurrection and the revelation of who Jesus is. The unyielding doubter has now become the confessor. He confesses Jesus as Lord, which is translated Adonai and means the foundation 
and stay as well as God that has translated Elohim or my prince, my judge. You see, Jesus, upon hearing his confession, he doesn't discount it. But he extends his need for faith to not only Thomas, but to all who would believe. He says, while he sees and believes, it meant blessed are those who have the faith to believe and yet have not seen Jesus physically. For to us, faith comes not by sight, but from what is heard, and what is heard comes by the word, comes by the declaration of Jesus. And so today, I simply want to ask, do you believe? Today, where do you need to lay down your doubts? Today, will you allow Jesus to simply engage you with the redemptive reality of the resurrection without needing to have all of your questions answered? I was meeting with a guy a while back and I was talking with him and we were talking about, man, Jesus and all these things. And uh, we came to the end of conversation. And I was like, well, what do you think about that? And he said, well, I think it's true. But I still got questions. But I'm willing to trust God even if those questions aren't answered. And I said, that's it. That's faith. And today, in light of Jesus engaging your doubts, in light of Jesus bringing redemption, man, uh, the thing is, is, does your life look different in the process? You see, faith in, engage, in the engaging redemption of Jesus means, again, that we look different. Our scars carry purpose. Our, man, we have faith no matter the circumstance. So that's why Paul can say, man, whether I'm rich or I'm poor, or I'm in prison or I'm free, I have food or I don't, whatever it is, I trust in Him. It would lead us to think differently, right? We would believe differently. We would, uh, man, uh, again, there is a play, like we need to research and find out what's true, but we need to make sure our standard of truth is God's Word and His Word alone. That's what we run to first, before Google. And then we would live differently. We would live empowered to proclaim. The power to complain, proclaim, my Lord and my God, You are my foundation. You're my judge, you're my prince, you're my king. And that's what we're after. That's what we celebrate today. So I'm going to have the team come back up. And man, I want us to wrestle with that today. Man, where are you struggling with that? Where do you need to lay your doubts before Jesus and just say, man, Jesus, let me just trust in the reality of the resurrection. Even though I don't have all the answers. May I engage, may would Jesus engage my doubts so that I might have faith. Let it draw me to repentance. That I would trust you and that, man, God, that that would then lead me in faith to engage others. Not for the sake of winning an argument, for the sake of just saying, hey, I'm just going to lay the, man, I'm going to lay the resurrection of Jesus before you. This is what he has done. May our lives look differently. May our words be spoken differently. Filled with good news, filled with hope. I want to allow you some time to respond in prayer. 
and communion. If you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come. Man, and today, remember what Jesus has done. That He uh, man, allowed His body to be broken, His blood to be poured out. But it was all uh, so that He might rise in victory and we might receive life. So we invite you to come partake of communion if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not, man, there's no, like we don't want to shame you. We want to invite you to come and continue to engage. You have more questions. If you're like, hey, what is it, man, what does the resurrection even mean? Like, man, I would love to talk with you. We're going to worship and sing. Um, and man, we're going to celebrate uh, a risen Savior today. Jesus, I thank you that You are risen and reigning, that You sit at the right hand of the Father, that You intercede, that You empower, that You engage us. I pray that You would continue to do so, that as our doubts arise, as our fears arise, that we would have peace. Not a self-made peace, but a deep peace that is found in the finished work of You, Jesus. And in light of that, may we be empowered to worship, to cry out, to trust that you are our foundation and hope. We give you glory in Jesus' name.